It's been an unusual week for the nation's emerging offshore wind industry. First, South Coast Wind announced its project off the coast of Martha's Vineyard could not secure financing with the power purchase agreement it signed with Massachusetts Utilities last year. South Coast blamed inflation, rising interest rates, supply chain disruptions, and the war in Ukraine. That meant the state's last two offshore wind procurements were effectively a bust because Commonwealth Wind had already moved to terminate its contracts. Then two offshore wind developers in New York State went to regulators there and said they couldn't make the numbers work for their projects anymore. They asked the regulators to pump more money into the deals. On this week's podcast, we're checking the pulse of the struggling offshore wind industry. I'm Bruce Moe of Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined by Representative Jeff Roy of Franklin, the House Chair of the Legislature's Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy Committee, and by Joe Curtitoni, the President of the Northeast Clean Energy Council. Let's start with you, Representative. Is the offshore wind industry in trouble? Well, uh, Bruce, I'm glad that you were not checking my pulse this morning. Uh, it, it, the, the offshore wind uh, industry is not in trouble uh, by any means. Um, we're going to experience some delays. Our hope uh, to get uh, a, a lot of offshore wind by 2030 is probably not going to happen, but uh, we're looking closer to 2031, 2032. So that's, uh, you know, it's a, a roadblock, but it's not the uh, the end of the road for offshore wind. The good news is that uh, construction has been underway for the nation's first uh, commercial scale offshore wind farm uh, known as Vineyard Wind. And just last week, uh, the ships were coming into the port at New Bedford, bringing the uh, materials in uh, to begin the assembly of the turbines. Uh, 15 miles south of uh, Martha's Vineyard. So while we have that bad news on one front, we have great news in that uh, we are on track to uh, have the first commercial scale offshore wind farm up and running and producing power by the end of 2023. So um, the other great news that I think fits into this particular piece is that the Healy administration just a few weeks ago uh, announced their uh, first procurement, and it's going to be a rather large procurement. It's up to 3,600 megawatts of offshore wind power. That's something that uh, the speaker, Speaker Mariano and myself, were pushing the administration to do something big, to make up for these roadblocks that we saw along the way, and the Healy administration came through with a spectacular uh, bid uh uh, proposal, uh, and we're going to be opening some bids uh, in January of 2024 that will get us back on track. Joe, what's your take? Is this yeah, a big setback for the industry? Well, first, thanks for having me on, Bruce. And it's great to be here with my uh, former public official colleague and, 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 and friend, uh, Jeff Roy. I don't say that only because he returns my calls, but I would concur. But, uh, you know, and I say this in the context of for folks who don't know the Northeast Clean Energy Council, we, our, our geographic region uh, representation and the clean energy climate economy trade uh, and it, it is all of New England, New York State, and really active down in mid-Atlantic. And in the context, you know, this is a big deal. I, I concur. We are, we are not, it, it's not in peril. Uh, we are facing some challenges, not unlike any other industry today or in our past. 
And, you know, in, in the context of Massachusetts credit, the administration, the leadership of Representative Roy and, you know, the, this, you know, Speaker uh, Mariano and others and, uh, and the Massachusetts legislature, you know, President Spilka, uh, for understanding, okay, being ahead of this and thinking diagnostically, what are we learning from this? Uh, you know, inflation has hit every sector and every type of project. I know this as Mayor of Somerville up until a little over a year ago, you know, it cost more to build houses, schools. I, I was one of the last rivers that was on the $270 million high school uh, and, and roads as well. So it's no surprise that pre-pandemic, uh, you know, projects that are pre-pandemic are coming in at higher due to inflation, higher interest rates and increased carrying costs, but it's not just clean energy. You know, the coastal link uh, gasoline pipeline doubling cost to 11 billion. Two nuclear reactors in Georgia are arriving seven years late and $17 billion over budget. Time is not a friend in major projects. What's important when we're doing public projects like this and the representative and there's great leadership of the state and the team, when we procured, what do we learn from that? How to create even greater flexibility, transparency for all parties and our stakeholders, our ratepayers and our constituents and execute these crucial projects that are so vital for our climate action goals and our economy. And uh, as, the, as the representative mentioned in the current um, procurement process, which is big, which I applaud the Commonwealth on that, it's going big. Uh, they've created that, strive to create that transparency and that flexibility so we learn and, uh, you know, and we get these projects done. Can so I share one other piece of good news as well? Sure. Uh, in April, a jury in Maine returned a verdict uh, supporting the uh, hydro uh, transmission line coming from Quebec down into the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And uh, the uh, opponents of the transmission line decided not to appeal that case. So uh, while we have this roadblock on offshore wind, we got some good news that uh, uh, that hydropower is going to come down uh, from uh, Quebec into Massachusetts, and that's going to provide uh, some serious power, uh, you know, very soon. So, Representative, let me ask you about how to handle this. I, I think I've asked you this in the past at one point or another, but how should the Healy administration handle these bids to reopen or terminate the contracts. Um, the, the, the reason I ask is this procurement, the large procurement that you're talking about, didn't rule them out, didn't say you can't bid in this next round because you didn't come through on the previous one. Uh, but, but it's sort of left it vague about whether that will be a penalty. They'll face some sort of penalty in the bidding. But how how should the Healy administration and I guess New York regulate? How should they handle this? Should they give the wind farms what they need? Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, it it seems to be two different approaches between New York and Massachusetts. And uh, you know, I support what the Healy administration is doing, uh, letting the uh, you know the the wind developers and the utilities uh, negotiate and come to an agreement and come to a settlement. Uh, it is certainly our hope that they will come to a settlement rather quickly. Um, I, I understand that the developers are fully prepared to pay all of the penalties that uh, the procurement process allows for, and, and it's to the tune of 48 to $60 million that they will pay in penalties in order to terminate these contracts. And I know they're negotiating that uh, with the uh, utilities currently, and we're hoping that's gonna be resolved soon. And then uh, when the bids come in, 
uh, I fully uh, support the notion that we should not preclude them from bidding on uh, the next round uh, because there aren't too many players in this space. In fact, there, there are four or five uh, wind developers that are capable of, of providing a bid. So uh, we want these two developers to be able to bid so that we can get real competition in what's going to come out of uh, round four in January. Uh, I do applaud the administration for including in the uh, bid proposal that uh, they can take into consideration whether or not uh, a developer uh, did not perform, and that will be considered as part of whether or not they're going to be awarded a bid. So, yeah, it may be a little vague, but I think everybody in this space knows what it means. There's uh, intense pressure on everybody to get these uh, these um, contracts resolved and settled. New York is taking the approach that uh, they're going to consider a petition from the uh, offshore wind developers to uh, increase the amount of money that they will get. Uh, that's not the approach that uh, we've taken here in Massachusetts. We're forcing uh, them to do their own negotiating, but uh, we certainly will be closely watching what happens uh, in New York uh, in terms of whether uh, the, the state there will say, hey, yeah, we'll give you more money. I'm not sure that's the best way to do this. Uh, I understand uh, the, the world events that have uh, uh, been really a constellation of the stars that has made it impossible for these projects to move forward under current conditions. I get that, um, but it's still important that we do move forward. And uh, my hope is that uh, the utilities and the developers will announce a settlement uh, within the next month or two so that we can move on to considerations of what's going to happen with round four. And you will notice that uh, at 3,600 megab uh, megabytes, uh, we're taking into consideration the loss of approximately 2,400 megawatts between the uh, dismantling of these two projects. So uh, there's a lot at stake. Uh, we need the energy that's... Uh, you know, remains unsaid that uh, we have goals, very uh, challenging goals to get to net zero by 2050. And so we need robust wind energy. And uh, in the long run, we're going to get there. Yeah. If I can add to that, Bruce, and commend, you know, what the representative of the administration is doing, trying to understand, okay, what occurred and how do we learn that and absorb that, and incorporate that in a way that is transparent and protects bid integrity and transparency for all involved in our next bids and learning from New York is keeping an eye on that. Again, we don't know what model's best, but uh, what I've learned over the past of my time as mayor, when I put on major projects to bid, well, the projects really came way out of whack in terms of what we were projecting and price. What would what were the factors driving that? Oh, how come how come we didn't get as many bids? So I, I totally agree. We we should not be punitive if it's like people were acting in a transparent, ethical way in earnest. And their and performance of their contract, we should allow them because we need competition to have the best price, and uh, especially in the end users, the ratepayers, our constituents, to deliver these projects. So, uh, and the Commonwealth really, uh, as the, the, the you know, thinking the administration had coming quick, set up a team and do this, working with the leadership of the legislature to think about how do we incorporate some of that optionality and flexibility 
and predictability for all stakeholders, all parties and next bids. That's happening. That's one thing we should be doing. Also, want to commend what the Commonwealth's doing right now and their efforts, for example, around Braden Point, seeking $250 million. You wrote about this, Bruce, uh, and infrastructure. Um, you know, the wind energy is not like uh, not unlike anyone else. The Commonwealth has tools and put money with, through their MassWorks grants and uh, in the past in the you know, district improvement finance. And I've utilized those tools and benefit assembleable to unlock our economic development to unlock infrastructure that drives economic development projects. So uh, again, commend the Commonwealth for being practical, being diagnostic, not just reacting. I know people, I understand the disappointment, uh, but if we have a vendor who, or a, a, a response to an RFP from a company that's gonna do a project and they've acted in earnest and we've been transparent about that, we can protect, you know, uphold the principles of bid integrity, transparency, add flexibility and predictability Look at these projects done, and we need competition and more bids on them. So, um, one of the interesting things in these filings that the offshore wind developers are making is that they often include little studies done by third parties to 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 illustrate or to demonstrate how tough the market is for them right now in terms of the cost of steel and other products. Um, but they all seem to reach the same conclusion. Uh, and this representative may touch on your re thinking that it, it's going to delay things a little bit, um, that this is not going away anytime soon. So the ramifications of this, you know, terminating the pre-existing contracts and going with new ones is going to be probably higher prices and it's coming, this is happening in New York and Massachusetts. And if it's happening in those states, it's happening around the world. And so this industry is going to all of a sudden, it's getting a little delay here, but then it's all, everybody's going to be trying to get wind turbines and, and all the stuff that they need all at the same time. And I'm sort of thinking that that's going to be a log jam that we're going to have to deal with for the next many years. Representative, is that what you mean when you say it may not all happen by 2030? Uh, it's certainly going to delete, lead to some delays because they're not going to start as quickly as they would have. For example, um, you know, the uh, South Coast project was supposed to begin immediately upon the completion of the Vineyard Wind project, which is going to be by the end of this year. And we were going to see the same amount of of work being done by South Coast uh, beginning in, in 2024. Well, that's certainly not going to happen under current conditions. So you've got a, a, a delay there. But the, the other countries that are all competing for the same steel and other pieces of equipment that are used in these turbines is going to, uh, you know, it is going to drive up the prices. Uh, we get that. Um, but it's still uh, necessary for us when you look down the road, the cost of not achieving these goals and the cost associated with, with rising waters and uh, more damage from climate change and global warming are, are very much higher than the cost that will be associated with uh, getting, the, uh, getting these uh, turbines up and built. In addition, what we've learned from this process, and I think what we learned from uh, COVID, is that we need to do more manufacturing right here in the United States of America. And uh, for the first time, we're seeing uh, a, a steel manufacturing plant that's, uh, uh, it's either Kentucky or Tennessee that is 
you know, building and uh, they're going to start producing steel right here in America again. Some of the uh, companies that uh, we have already manufacturing steel uh, in Massachusetts and other states in the United States, whereas uh, they were looked at very high cost uh, steel. Well, they're now looking competitive on the world market. So uh, it's going to be a boon for those particular industries. And we're also going to see more, uh, you know, other pieces of equipment manufactured here in the United States. And I always point to Brayton Point, which is going to be a home of Prismium <laughs> that is going to be manufacturing all of the cable that is going to be used to get the power from the turbines to the land along the entire east coast of Massachusetts. Those are going to be manufactured right in Somerset, Massachusetts. So I see this as an opportunity not only to get the energy that we need to achieve our goals, but to boost uh, our economic climate here in Massachusetts by getting more industries here uh, to create the products that we need to break the logjam on our supply chain. Yeah, if I could add that, Bruce, this is an important point that the representative is speaking about uh, and, and, and is hitting home on. And when people realize wind and wind energy is a big opportunity, not just a necessity. It is a necessity because of climate change. You know, And if you invite anybody who doesn't think that climate is a problem, just go outside if you have in the last few days, take a deep breath of the smoky breeze of the air and, and, and ask yourself. Take a deep breath. Smoke. I think that's the point, Joe. We don't <laughs> yeah, want don't, to well, take well, a deep breath. For the naysayers, yeah, I haven't gone outside. <laughs> but the point is, it's the opportunity, the economy. Look, the, so the, I came to this work here because the intersectionality of climate action, everything in our lives, from uh, racial and social justice, economic justice, environmental justice, but also the economy and, and climate action and what Massachusetts is leading on. And I'll say this about other states in the region I represent, but in the context of Massachusetts, impacts everything on transportation, on, on construction, on vertical, in horizontal, on housing, on materials, jobs, 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 the impact positively to people, place, and planet. And we need it all. As the representative, we need the wind, we need solar, and, and we need hydro. But here, you know, the entire infrastructure to support these projects, ships, port facilities, undersea cable production, they're being built from scratch. I mean, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory estimates what? That economies of scale will drive down development costs over the next 12 years or so. But the reality is that the initial projects, you know, they, we have to lay the groundwork, and that costs money. So again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, the Commonwealth efforts to invest in the interconnection infrastructure and other piece of infrastructure is a big game. We do that anyway. We've done it for sports stadiums. Uh, both New York and New Jersey, for example, estimate 20,000 new jobs associated with the offshore wind by 2030. And Massachusetts, Massachusetts, and the representative knows this, can produce 183% more offshore wind than both those states combined. I mean, I always say Massachusetts is Texas before the oil boom when it comes to offshore wind. So, uh, that's important, and in 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 the economic opportunity is crucial. And it's there. Now there'll be cost, and with anything, and time is no friend in politics and life and construction projects. They cost more money, but at the end of the day, in the long run, and we're seeing it now, clean energy jobs, climate economy jobs are outpacing fossil fuel jobs, and it's already happening. All right, a lot of because of machination, but also the uh, they, they pay better, and that's when the investment is. And this is where we double down. These are not. Failures. I want the public to understand. They're 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 headwinds. I have a lack of a better term. They're challenges, like any other industry. Uh, as we think about this and investing in transforming the grid or an interconnection to the grid, that's something we're we're trying to do in 15 years. Or it took 100 years to become dependent upon. So we have a lot to do. 
we're going to be facing some things we haven't seen before. And we are going to learn as the representative, what is New York doing? What have other parts of the world done? I am fully confident this Commonwealth can get it done because they're listening and learning being diagnostic. Uh, and we need to do so in a way that is transparent, protects the integrity of the process, and protects the end user, the ratepayer, the people we represent, the constituents at the end of the day. And we're in great position to do that. So it, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but it does seem like the wind farm developers, because there are so few of them, that they really, um, it's very hard for the state, you know, the states to negotiate away from this. They, if, if they can't, I don't know, there's not much bargaining room, I guess, for the state because they need the wind to meet these climate change goals. And these companies say they need more money. Is, is there much the state can do, Representative, to, to bargain here? Well, look at uh, one important thing that the state can and will do is to allow everybody to bid on this project, to make it competitive. Uh, you know, there, some have suggested that uh, because these people uh, uh, are looking to terminate their contracts, they should be precluded from bidding. If you take two major players, major developers out of the mix on a bid process, you are not going to see robust competition for contracts uh, to get uh, wind energy. So that's a huge step that the state can take uh, by allowing all of these players to bid on this project because competition is what we need in order to uh, drive the prices down. But also consider the fact of uh, all of the economic development that can and will come with these projects, how much that is going to drive our economy and make life easier for people in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You look, like a, look at a city like New Bedford that 100 years ago was lighting the world with whale oil. They can come back here, a hundred years later, and be uh, the the wind capital of the United States, and it will certainly make that economy thrive. I see the same for uh, Salem and the port there, which will support not only our efforts here in Massachusetts, but will support the efforts to develop a wind uh, offshore wind program in the state of Maine. And the most poetic piece is Somerset the home of the last coal-fired plant in Massachusetts is now going to be the home of the cable manufacturer. So there's a lot of good that comes from this. And uh, you know, while we're focusing solely on, uh, on the cost, we're ignoring all of the good economic development in clean energy pieces that bring benefits that uh, surely outweigh some of the uh, the costs that uh, increases that we'll face here. I think we're in a good position because uh, developers want to do business here in Massachusetts. They recognize Massachusetts as a great state uh, to do business. And uh, we want to be the home of this new industry uh, and creation of new jobs, new businesses, and new economies for uh, the residents of the Commonwealth. Joe, you want to wrap it up? I've, I'm, otherwise, yeah. I'm going to call home Just here. let me uh, add a, 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 another exclamation point where Representative just eloquently and accurately laid out. 
We want to make the clean energy choice the easy, equitable, sustainable, affordable choice for the end user, for the homeowner, the renter, the small business person, for every person, every walk of life in the Commonwealth. To do so, we need to set the table for the industry and the Commonwealth to be an easy escalation of that industry, to set the table, tying our investment, planning strategy, innovation with regulatory, legislative, and procurement development to make it happen in a way that is transparent, that can, embraces bid integrity, uh, but creates that flexibility. We're, I, I submit we're on that track and continue, if we continue to be, to learn from that and be diagnostic with the information we learn, we'll be ready to take on the unforeseen. And that's gonna continue to happen. Massachusetts is really the prime state to lead that effort. And I commend the administration, the legislature, and representative for what they're doing. Joe Curtitoni of the Northeast Clean Energy Council and Representative Jeff Roy of Franklin, thank you for joining us today. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.